This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Among the many benefits of life in the computer age is having a world of information at our fingertips. One of the downsides, however, is that all that information needs to be protected, which is where all those passwords come in. You know, the passwords we're always forgetting and resetting those passwords. The subject of our Sunday Morning cover story, reported by Susan Spencer. A new CBS News poll says one in four of us forgets and has to reset a computer password at least once a month. Sound familiar? What is it about passwords that elicits this feeling of, you know, you want to take the computer and throw it out the window? We deal with them so frequently, and it's so frequently a frustrating experience. Honestly, do you remember all your passwords ahead on Sunday morning? Our Sunday profile this morning features Damian Lewis, an actor with many distinctive roles that have one thing in common, as Jim Axelrod will show us. What have I done wrong? 
Really? From billions to homeland to band of brothers. How does a blue-blooded Brit play red-blooded Americans so well? But it's much more than that. There is a physicality, I think there is a machismo about an American male. So where do you go to find the actor creating some of the most memorable American roles on TV? Try right here in London. Damien Lewis ahead on Sunday morning. It's that time of year when potholes turn streets into obstacle courses. But Lee Cowan found a man who transforms them into a real road show. Artists don't traditionally play in traffic, but we found one whose canvas takes him there anyway. I'm always worried about the cops, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I'm too old to be arrested. I've got, you know, twin boys. <laughs> the street artist who literally works in the streets ahead on Sunday morning. After which we'll follow the bouncing ball and discover the other passion of America's premier crossword puzzle master. Will Shorts is a rock star of the puzzle world. As editor of the New York Times crossword puzzle, which celebrated its 75th anniversary this past Wednesday, he is a word fanatic. But his real obsession is something completely different. A puzzle master with a passion for ping pong, coming up on Sunday morning. Martha Teichner explains why Canada is putting out the welcome mat for Syrian refugees. Rita Braver chats with celebrated writer Gaitalese. Steve Hartman introduces us to a Girl Scout who's living proof that honesty is the best policy. And more. Coming up... Didn't Bill Gates say 15 years ago that passwords were going to be obsolete? I, I think he said something like that. Please enter your password. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. They're a necessary evil of the computer age. Those passwords so many of us just can't seem to remember. But could they become a thing of the past? Susan Spencer is hoping the answer is yes. New York Times reporter Ian Urbina gets paid to ask questions. But there is one question he never really expected anyone to answer. You would just go up to total strangers and ask them? What's your password? I would just ask, do you have any passwords that are special to you? Can you tell me the story behind them? So you kind of snuck up on them? Yeah, I guess. He snuck up on strangers on airplanes, on parents at the playground. For four years, wherever he was, he would plead and cajole and usually get their secret password. What's funny is these people were really um, open and willing, sometimes even eager, to um, tell me their full story and their password. One theory, people are so fed up with creating and remembering the things that revealing them feels a lot like revenge. I call them digital nudists. You know, people just disrobe and say, <laughs> okay, I'm so sick of this, here's my password. What is it about passwords that elicits this feeling of, you know, you want to take the computer and throw it out the window. We deal with them so frequently, and it's 
so frequently a frustrating experience. Frustrating, but apparently fascinating to Lori Craner, who is so into passwords, she designed a dress sporting some favorites. Gemini, Tinkerbell. A former chief technology officer at the Federal Trade Commission, she has written more than 15 scientific papers on passwords. She knows they're a pain. We have so many rules about how they have to be complicated and hard to guess, and then we're supposed to have a different one for every account we have. And clearly we can't cope. A CBS News poll found that roughly one in four people has to reset a forgotten computer password at least once a month. And we're not supposed to write them down, and that's just really difficult for people to deal with. And so the password process often goes reset it, and then forget it. Even though we always tell ourselves, this one I will remember, because after all, this one is so clever. Chances are you won't, and it isn't. The attackers, you know, first they guess your name, and then they guess your name with a one, and then they guess your name with an exclamation point, right? Because those are the most common things that so many people do. To generate unguessable passwords, Craner recommends using a computer program that creates passwords for you. Yeah. All right. She says most people are clueless okay. about security. Uh, here we have a choice of password with a capital A and a capital mm -hmm. O or password with an at sign and a zero. Just how so clueless was clear to me when I took Craner's password test. Definitely that one, the second one. Seemed easy. Just pick the safest password. That's actually wrong. What? I you scored, scored four out of seven. <laughs> <laughs> I just did an interview with you and I only scored four out of seven. No wonder people can't do this. It's really hard for people to do it. What is the most unhackable password? Random characters. Yeah, one that's long and random. Nobody wants to Nobody do that. Nobody wants no. to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Professors Chris Collins and Julie Thorpe study passwords at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology in Canada. Because we're writing them every day, people want to have something that means something to them. Which is exactly what they found when they combed through a database of 32 million stolen passwords. Most used real words. Love topping the list. Love, love, true love, I love you, love ya, love bug. People have no imagination. <laughs> Encouragingly, perhaps, the word love appeared 23 times more often than the word hate. Other popular choices, baby, hot, girl, dog, and a few vulgar suggestions of something you could go do to yourself. We as humans, we don't sit well with uh, randomized codes. I don't want to be known as JQ4 dollar sign exclamation point. Right, it feels like an empty space. That's not space. my password. Truly <laughs> <laughs> really noted. In fact, research for his article, The Secret Life of Passwords, convinced Ian Urbina that they often are keys to an intensely personal story. This topic is almost like a portal um, into a very deep place. Take the mother Urbina met at a playground. She told me that her son had committed suicide and she had discovered his password written somewhere and the password was Lambda1969. And she quickly figured out that Lambda and 1969 were both specific things in gay history. And it got her realizing that her son had been gay. But even meaningful passwords are hard to keep track of. 
didn't Bill Gates say 15 years ago <laughs> that passwords were going to be obsolete? I, I think he said something like that. I mean, we have driverless cars. Why is this so hard? Yeah, it, it, it seems to be a very hard problem. In our CBS News poll, an optimistic 80% said they expect passwords will be replaced. But with what? A lot of people um, will use a fingerprint mm -hmm. on their phone. It's not actually that secure. Your fingerprint is actually something you leave everywhere. So they're not actually secrets. Carl Martin's fingerprints are all over a very different idea. He founded NIMI a technology startup in Toronto with the mission to make passwords obsolete. What we've discovered is that the electrocardiogram, so this is the heart rhythm, is a great way to identify people. The pattern of the rhythm is different for every person. Really? I don't think most people know that. But they soon will, he says. Martin's wristband uses your heart rhythm to identify you to your computer. Says, tap your NIMI band twice to sign in. So. I tap, and I'm in. That's it? That's it. No passwords? No passwords. No remembering no. your second grade teacher's <laughs> middle name? No complex <laughs> secrets. It's just you and your wristband. And if the band is stolen, it automatically shuts down, as I discovered when I nabbed his. So you touch it, and you're going to be there for a while, because your ECG does not match my ECG. It's Susan. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it won't do it. But for now, even the man who vows to make passwords extinct needs one to get into his computer. So I do, out of necessity, because the world has not moved to, you know, beyond passwords. We're still there. We're pushing it. What about you? What are your password habits? I do tend to have sentimental ones. Um, I won't say more than that, or else I'm going to have to give them up. Um, <laughs> or you'll uh, have to kill me. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to write down my password, okay? And you're going to tell me if it's any good, okay? That's my password. So this is actually a pretty, pretty decent password here. Okay, when we turn the cameras off, I'll tell you where it comes from. <laughs> Next a prize in every box. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. February 19th, 1912, 105 years ago today. A prize day for generations of Cracker Jack lovers. For that was the day, many agree, a hidden treasure was first found at the bottom of every box. Thought to be introduced at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair by brothers F.W. and Louis Rukheim, legend has it the caramel-coated treat got its name three years later when a salesman, impressed by the process that kept the concoction from sticking together, exclaimed in delight, that's Cracker Jack. In 1908, Cracker Jack got its big pop culture break when it was immortalized in the baseball classic, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, forever linking it with our national pastime. And while the tune remains unchanged, Cracker Jack's prizes have come a long way. After those metal figurines of early years, Lucky kids later began to extract toys like 
tops, whistles, and pins of all descriptions. And today, Cracker Jack rewards are anything but old hat. They've gone high tech and online, a sign of the times. But whatever the prize, Cracker Jack remains a crunchy favorite for fans young and old alike. Chew on that. Fair warning. So, all right, well, this is looking pretty. Potholes ahead. Potholes are the bane of many a driver's existence this time of year, except for a Chicago man who's turned them into a road show. Here's Lee Cowan. The light at the end of our long winter tunnel is ahead. But so are the calling cards winter leaves behind. The black holes of the asphalt galaxy that by spring can swallow a car whole. Oh. <laughs> That's going to take an extra bag of concrete. It's so deep. <laughs> Before the snow and ice made goosebumps out of our roads, we found Jim Bach doing a little traffic triage. His neighborhood in Chicago is full of these urban craters. So many, in fact, that Jim decided to start fixing them himself. I just want to get my work done and get out. I don't, I'm not interested in having people watch me, really. Especially the watchful gaze of the Chicago police. And I'm always worried about the cops, you know. <laughs> I, I, and, I've, <laughs> and I've never had any... Fair point. I'm too old to be arrested. I've got, you know, twin boys. <laughs> it's true his gestures of goodwill aren't technically legal, but no one's really bothered him about it because Jim isn't just filling Chicago's potholes. He's turning them into works of art. It's fun to see it reemerge. Like this rendering of a rumpled Cheeto bag made out of marble and glass. So, all right, well, this is looking pretty. So it's just that little bit of unexpected joy, which is kind of a fun thing for me. His street mosaics have been appearing all around the city for years now, dozens of them dotting the roads. Former potholes that are now frames for flowers, for popsicles and creamsicles, and a few that state the obvious, like this pothole that proudly screams, it's not a pothole anymore. Yeah, this is probably my most popular piece. I mean, probably more people see this than they would if it was in a gallery somewhere. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. A graphic artist, Jim's passion for mosaics started on a trip to Pompeii, Italy, where he realized if art made of glass and marble was durable enough to survive an ancient volcano, sure, it could survive a little modern-day traffic. And they do. In fact, they hold up remarkably well, much to the surprise and delight of passers-by. I think it's great. It looks beautiful. I laugh every time I see it. Jim spends eight to ten hours crafting each piece, all in his basement studio, carefully chipping away at the colored glass and then setting each tiny piece in place. There are some moments of terror once the... Uh, <laughs> because it, it can all go to hell in a second. It's held together by nothing but cheesecloth, and placing it on top of wet concrete is a process that's not entirely forgiving. As it dries, Jim peels the cheesecloth back. It's a painstakingly slow and detailed procedure, 
especially when you consider the fact that Jim's doing it all on his knees in the middle of traffic. I mean, do you ever feel a little vulnerable out here? Yes, yes, yes I do. He just tries not to inhale too much. There's a hazard. <laughs> but the most nerve-wracking part may be leaving his work behind to dry overnight. We nervously watch cars zoom around his cones with almost reckless disregard, but somehow they survive, at least until they're paved back over. It used to bum me out at first, but it, it, it's kind of, it, it's, it's a price I pay for playing in the street, you know. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's why he posts his works on Instagram. At least there, there's a little social media permanence. He has thousands of followers who anxiously wait for him to post his newest installation. After all, there are plenty of potholes that could use an artistic lift. Too many to ever get to in a single lifetime. So the next time you curse one for destroying your car's alignment or blowing a tire, try to look at them the way Jim Bakker does. Not just as bumps in the road, but an opportunity to do something truly inspiring. Still to come. All these little stories are really big stories if you think big about little people. We catch up with author Gay Talese. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. And later... Now, can you turn that into New York? Well, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. Billion star Damian Lewis. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Fine print this morning. Rita Braver talked with a writer who's gained quite a reputation and quite a following by pushing the envelope. Frank Sinatra has a cold, maybe the most celebrated American magazine story of the past 50 years. Sinatra with a cold is Picasso without paint, Ferrari without fuel, only worse. For the common cold robs Sinatra of that uninsurable jewel, his voice. The words were written by Gay Talese. And the story caused a sensation when it was published in Esquire in 1966. A deeply revealing profile, even though Sinatra would never grant Talese an interview. So he sought out those he calls the little people, the ones who knew the superstar best. How many people do you figure you ended up interviewing? About 75 or 80. You got details that no one had ever known, like that there was a woman whose specific job it was to carry a yeah. case with all his hair pieces. Yeah. No one had ever heard that no, before. No, I had neither. All these little stories are really big stories if you think big about little people. And that's what I like to do. The Sinatra story has just been republished in a new anthology of Talisa's works called High Notes. He's considered a leader of a movement known as New Journalism that took root in the 1960s and 70s Writers who tried to break the boundaries of traditional reporting. You tried to bring some of the techniques and the excitement from telling a fiction story into true, nonfiction. True, absolutely right. But I also wanted the real name and real facts. Talise, who owns this stylish Manhattan townhouse, could be a character in one of his own stories. So Look at this. Fun. Yeah. For one thing, he's a clothes horse with a wall of closets. The closet here 
has all dark suits. These are evening suits. I would not wear what I'm wearing now at in the evening, necessarily. No surprise. Young Gaetano Tolis, his full name, wore clothes handmade by his father, an immigrant Italian tailor. But Talese says it was in his mother's Ocean City, New Jersey dress shop that he learned to listen. I was an eavesdropper. I was 10, 11, helping out in the store. He started covering sports for a local paper while still in high school. And after college, got work first as a copy boy, then a sports writer for the New York Times, drawing praise for his offbeat stories. For example, I'd write a profile of the guy who goes to the prize, prize fights and rings the bell between rounds. Within a few years, he left to write full-time for magazines. Soon, articles expanded into books. His 1969 bestseller, The Kingdom and the Power, turned a piercing eye on his old employer, The New York Times. You pulled back the curtain on what before then had been a very private, closely held world. It's true. Held Did you lose any friends because of it? Well, I certainly did have some enemies. But the point was, in those days, journalism was accustomed to writing about the world, but not having the world write about them. In Honor Thy Father, his book on the Bonanno organized crime family, he got so close to his subjects that people questioned whether he was making some of it up. But Talese keeps details of every one of his interviews in a basement office he calls The Bunker, the records of every story collected in boxes covered with collages he makes himself. There are files covering every period of his life. 1980, best and worst year of my life. Is that true? Yeah. And So far, <laughs> it was the first year I knew what it's like to be rich. And it's the first year I knew what it's like to be so denounced as a writer that my presence was, in many cases, voided and certainly avoided. That was because word got out about his unorthodox reporting methods for Thy Neighbor's Wife, his blockbuster study of the changing sexual mores in America. You managed a massage parlor. That's true. You took up residence at a kind of nudist colony swingers resort, is that right? Not kind of, it really was. It was everything you say. You acknowledged your own sexual escapades in writing in, this in book? That, I wrote about it. And he still remembers that his brand of participatory journalism provoked a lot of skeptical questions. What right did you have, being a married man with two young daughters, how do you justify living this this decadent, disgusting, uh, unforgivable life, all under the pretext of being a journalist. What about your poor laboring wife? That laboring wife knew what I was doing. Does it make it justified? No, I don't know, but I'm a writer, and that's, that's it. That wife is Nan Talese, the calm to his storm. They've been married for almost 58 years. She's a literary star in her own right, a respected publisher, with her own imprint for Knopf. Her take on her husband's bad boy behavior? He says if you go to an orgy, you can't just watch an orgy. You no, 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 I think, he was, I think he was always there, and I used to giggle because I used to think he was on the telephone on a wall phone with no clothes on. 
I had promised that I would never do anything to interfere with his writing. I mean, I always knew he loved me, and I didn't think anything made any difference. Why do you think this marriage has endured all these many years? I have never found anyone as interesting as he is. I mean, he really is interesting. Interesting and controversial. His most recent book is The Voyeur's Motel, about a motel owner who claimed to spy on his guests. The lead character's veracity has been questioned, but Talese says he stands by the book. And just last year, he drew fire at a Boston University conference when he couldn't name any women writers of his generation who'd influenced him. Talese says he misspoke and decries today's gotcha journalism. I didn't mean a thing that I said. And I can't get, I can't erase that quote. I can't flee the charge. And I'm so angry about it and so defenseless and helpless. But don't pity Gay Talese. At 85, he's still getting magazine assignments and working on a new book about his marriage. And he still loves his style of reporting. You know, for 60 years, I still have not lost my sense of wonder, amazement at how extraordinary the ordinary person is if you know them well. And I try to know them well. And it keeps me alive, wanting to know more. Coming up, she made history. It happened this past week, yesterday. The passing of a woman who did nothing less than change the course of American history. Norma McCorvey died at an assisted living center in Katy, Texas of heart disease. And while the name might not ring a bell, it was under the pseudonym Jane Roe that McCorvey became involved in one of the most far-reaching lawsuits of the 20th century, Roe versus Wade. We must link arm in arm to protect and uphold the right to safe and legal abortion. McCorvey was a 22-year-old unwed mother when she became pregnant again in 1969. Abortion was illegal in Texas, so she filed suit against the state which was represented by Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade. Roe v. Wade made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which issued its decision on January 22, 1973. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. By then, Norma McCorvey had already given birth and put her daughter up for adoption. But the law gave millions of women the right to choose. As for McCorvey, she later underwent a religious conversion and would ultimately regret her earlier position. I'm on what I call the right side of the movement now because I'm fighting for life instead of death. You think Roe v. Wade will be overturned? Yes. I hope so. The law has been a flashpoint ever since and is sure to be front and center next month when confirmation hearings begin for President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch. Norma McCorvey, forever immortalized as Jane Roe, was 69 years old.
ahead from puzzles to ping pong. Will Short's passion is crossword puzzles, and he's world class. Editing the Daily Puzzle in the New York Times, authoring or editing more than 500 crossword puzzle books. Solving a crossword is like putting the world in order, and you don't get that satisfaction much in everyday life. His success has him constantly in demand. Thanks a lot. Traveling the world as the renowned puzzle master. That should be enough to fill every hour of every day. But he's got another passion. Shorts might describe it as two words, eight letters. When I'm walking into a club, and I hear the sound of ping pong balls, that is one of my favorite sounds in the world. He started playing as a kid in the family basement, and by high school he was getting good with the trophies to prove it. 1966. I think this was my first ping pong prize. How old were you? Let's see. I was 14. But that same year, the teenaged Shorts sold his first crossword puzzle, and a career was launched. It would be three decades later, in 2001, when Shorts rediscovered his love of the game. Playing a few games a week evolved into an everyday habit. It's all levels,、uh, all ages, both men and women. Then, in 2011, he opened his own Westchester Table Tennis Center in the New York City suburb of Pleasantville, New York, where he lives.、And、most nights, there is a never-ending diversity of ages and talents in one shared love. When you're in a match, you're looking at your opponent's weaknesses and considering your own, and trying to maximize your game against the other person. So there's an intellectual challenge to this. I mean, I think we just think ping pong is getting the ball back to the other person. Yeah, not so easy. No, it's not. <laughs> Today, at age 64, Shorts is ranked in the top 25% of table tennis players over age 60 in the country. Not as good as Kai Jung. Who is among America's top 25 players? Kai's Chinese family wanted him to become an American citizen to train and compete here, and when no other host family would take him in, Shorts did, as guardian and mentor. Who better to help in Kai's dream to someday compete in the Olympics? On average, I play about two hours a day. And while Kai chases his dream. Will Shorts has a dream of his own. He wants to set a record for the longest consecutive number of days playing table tennis. Call it a challenge. Call it an obsession. To date, Shorts has played in more than 250 table tennis clubs around the world. The smallest club I ever played at was in Goa, India. They had one table. It was actually a pretty good facility, but there was no air conditioning, and it was in、uh, the summer. So I was just、uh, dripping wet、uh, after a few minutes. He is so intent on achieving his goal that a few years ago, Shorts began meticulously planning his travels, mapping out available clubs, even bringing along his own playing partner to make sure he always has an opponent. It was on a trip to Eastern Europe last October where we caught up with him, 
playing in Schreischat, Austria. Today is day 1,474, consecutive days of table tennis. Which meant he'd been playing ping pong every day for more than four years. I'd like to wish you good solving, good luck, and let the games begin. Then it was on to Sinek in Slovakia, where he presided over the opening ceremony of a Sudoku competition for the World Puzzle Federation, an organization he co-founded. The next day, to Vienna and one of the oldest table tennis clubs in Europe. Then across the border to Bratislava and a chance at setting yet another personal record. Shorts wanted to play in two countries on the same day. He located three clubs, but number one was closed, and so was number two. There was still number three, but his chances looked doomed because every table was reserved. So uh, it didn't look like I could play. But I came in anyway, and there were five guys who had reserved three tables. They needed one more person to play, so I lucked out. Like this? No, not, uh, no, keep it pretty close to the ball. Yeah, that's good. Back yeah. at home, you can always find him back at his club. The exercise part comes from chasing the ball. <laughs> yeah, there's right? a lot of that, yeah. Why is this as relaxing as doing a puzzle? The reason this is so relaxing, just like crosswords, is that you get completely wrapped up in the game. You forget everything else in the world. And when you're done, you're relaxed, you're refreshed, you're ready to go back to do everything else. <laughs> this Sunday morning makes 1,600 days and counting. A streak so unique, he will one day submit it as a brand new category worthy of a Guinness World Record. Next. Why so important to you? Because if you're not honest, then what are you? Steve Hartman with the whole truth about Girl Scout cookies. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's that time of year when Girl Scouts like Christine, Angelina, and Celeste, who is the daughter of our Sunday morning editor, George Posdirek, are busy indeed selling all those cookies, which so many of us find irresistible. Though not so much Charlotte McCourt. Steve Hartman has a story about the importance of the whole truth. Of all the things a little girl can aspire to be, 11-year-old Charlotte McCourt of South Orange, New Jersey, says the most important of these is to be truthful. Yes, it's like a core feeling. Why so important to you? Because if you're not honest, then what are you? Charlotte says the first eight words of the Girl Scout law are, I will do my best to be honest. So when it came time to peddle her Girl Scout cookies this year, she decided to tell her customers the whole truth. In this letter to one customer that went viral on the internet, she wrote, The Girl Scout organization can sometimes use false advertisement. She then graded the cookies. She gave the do si -do a five for its unoriginal bland flavor, while saving most of her venom for the dreaded toffee-tastic. She gave it a one for being a bleak, flavorless, gluten-free wasteland. It's as flavorless as dirt, she wrote. My sister and I threw out the box. Like, we tried 
everything. We tried dunking it in tea. We tried dunking it in hot chocolate. It was just gross. Aww. Would you like to buy some Girl Scout cookies? As you might expect, brutal honesty like that can have a dramatic impact on sales. Charlotte was hoping to sell 300 boxes this year. Is that all? But she got nowhere near that. Nowhere near. That's you? That is all me. When we visited last week, she had already sold more than 23,000 boxes. A Girl Scout record. How do you explain this? Truth in advertising. Apparently, honesty has become such an aberration. The truth so sadly missed that when all these people read Charlotte's letter, they felt compelled to support her. I sold thousands of Samoas and thousands of Thin Mints. Have you sold any Toffee-tastics? To my grandmother. <laughs> it was before Charlotte wrote the letter. Just one box. So then she gave them her to, to her friend who... Who has a dog? Who, no, who <laughs> has wanna... a gluten allergy. Okay. <laughs> so there is your hope, America, that even in a world of fake news and alternative facts, honesty can and will prevail. Some Axelrods live better than others. Still to come, a quintessentially American British actor. Everyone wants to be a lion. Damian Lewis. And with open arms. Everyone okay? Sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Next time I say wait for my command, you wait for my command, Sergeant. Yes, sir. It's Sunday morning on CBS. And here again is Jane Pauley. Damien Lewis was widely praised for his portrayal of a no-nonsense army officer in HBO's critically acclaimed miniseries, Band of Brothers. Lewis has made quite a name for himself, playing a number of all-American roles. Even though, as Jim Axelrod explains, there's nothing all-American about him. It's a nice spread. Yeah, this is the uh, Axelrod residence. <laughs> well, it's one of the Axelrod It's one of the Axelrod residences. Some Axelrods live better than others. On the this North Shore of Long Island, actor Damien Lewis is showing us around the fictional home of hedge fund mogul Bobby Axelrod. Come here. He's the character Lewis plays in Billions, premiering its second season on CBS-owned Showtime tonight. Plot spoiler right over here. I'm not going to tell you why. I understand. So this is like a first date? It's no surprise that Lewis has created another indelibly American blue-collar character. Just hanging out a carrot there for people. Bobby has to do some fast work with his wife. I understand. <laughs> it's his wheelhouse and what he loves most about acting on TV these days. The chance to explore a character's complexity that a two-hour feature film does not always provide. Is this guy a hero? Or is this guy a villain? Uh, he's going to be both in different measures. This high-end novelistic form of TV is peppered with despicable people who do marvelous things and marvelous people who do despicable things. Lewis has portrayed both marvelous people... Lula, Lula, War hero Dick Winters in HBO's Band of Brothers... I need to be fully able, both physically and mentally, to honor my duties as a Marine and as a man. And despicable, like double, sometimes triple agent Nick Brody in Homeland. But when I pull a deal off the table, 
I leave Nagasaki behind. Together with Bobby Axelrod, these are three of the most compelling American characters of this new golden age. But what is surprising is that Damian Lewis is not American at all. It's funny you've just brought this up because when I was getting changed, I reminded myself to do it in English. And Which English? In, in my, my London British accent. English. That's right. Damien Lewis is a Brit. Does it take you a while to slide back into the, the British life? Yeah, it did. there's always a period of adjustment, re-entry. Not just a Brit, but an upper-crust Brit at that, an officer of the Order of the British Empire. His grandfather was the Lord Mayor of London. Lewis was raised with his three siblings in the posh St. John's Wood section of London. A year after this picture, at the age of eight, he was sent off to boarding school. That's him in the middle of this cricket team photo at Eton, a seat of British privilege that counts both Prince William and Prince Harry as alumni. All the greats have come through here. The Gilgoods, Olivier's. We sat down with him at London's historic Haymarket Theatre, where he's spending his hiatus from billions starring in Edward Albee's The Goat. And the blue-blooded Brit told us how he transforms into a red-blooded American. The irony is that coming from a white-collar British background, I tend to play blue-collar Americans. So what do you understand uh, about blue-collar Americans that allows you to do that? There is a physicality. I think there is a machismo about an American male who is robust, athletic, able to build things, and he takes care of stuff. And it's a point of pride. You've done it now, Yanks. You've captured me. But his ability to think, feel, or move like an American wouldn't mean a thing if Damien Lewis didn't possess an almost freakish ability to sound American. But it's much more than that. It's just finding a flavor, an intimation of an accent. It's often in a rhythm. It's often a speed. When you find those consistently, everybody immediately goes, got him. Can you give me a for instance? If we took uh, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. <laughs> well, the, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. Now, can you turn that into New York? Well, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. <laughs> That's more Bobby. That's more Yonkers. There's a bit of a bada-bing, bada-boom, that fast New York. That's the deal. No negotiation. I'm counting to five, and then it's off the table. One. A classically trained Shakespearean actor, Lewis's big break came during a Broadway production of Hamlet that Steven Spielberg happened to see in 1995. Four years later, when Tom Hanks and Spielberg were casting Band of Brothers, they flew Lewis to L.A. for a mind-blower of an audition. Tom was in the middle of filming Castaway, so Tom was barely visible. It was just this big ball of hair at the other end of the room. Tom read all the parts, so I had a really fun hour. The casting director said, well done, Damien, that was fantastic. Go back to your hotel, that was great. And I went out and I got absolutely hammered. Uh, <laughs> to, to celebrate. I went to bed at four in the morning, and of course I got a call at eight. <laughs> so Steven Spielberg's going to come in and, and see you with Tom. And, and I jumped in the shower and, just, and just sort of wept. <laughs> they gave me the role that day. So, so your life changed. 
How'd you like to go to boot camp in April? Come on, you can make it up here. Come on. While that led to three Emmy and four Golden Globe nominations over the next 16 years, being one of his generation's leading men on television so far still doesn't insulate him from the question. By the way, this is not a booty call. A journalist said to me well, after I just accepted billions, I said, why did you take billions? You didn't need to. I think what she meant was that once you have a big hit on TV, then you can go and make a big, become a film star. I'm going to shove you now. Go ahead. At 46, Lewis may have the delicate balance of life just where he wants it, especially as his marriage has to accommodate not one, but two A-list acting careers. His wife is actress Helen McCrory, Narcissa Malfoy in the Harry Potter series. They have two kids, a 10-year-old daughter and a 9-year-old son. So for Lewis, the question is about something entirely different. You balance two big careers in your home. So how does this all work? I, I can't breathe. <laughs> You've asked me the question. How do we balance it? We are, of course, very busy. People, I think, are a bit stupefied by the fact that I keep going backwards and forwards to Americans. Oh, my God, how do you do it? Oh, this must be awful. But the truth is, the life I have at the moment is sort of brilliant. Which means Lewis is more than satisfied to focus on American TV and American voices. Been here a while? Do you want that grand scale cinematic success? Do you, do you need to be a movie star? Well, I think, yeah, sometimes you, you wake up thinking about that, thinking, oh, I wonder if I missed an opportunity to make big, big movies. You know, I made some big movies and they um, have not always been the rewarding experience that making big TV show at this particular time has been. What matters now for Damian Lewis isn't the big screen, it's the big picture. So would I have traded making Band of Brothers for making something else? The answer's categorically no. Would I have traded Homeland for anything else? No. Or would I trade Billions for anything else? No. Next, I once accidentally replied all and sent an email complaining about my then-boyfriend to a bunch of strangers. Hot-button issue. Back to computers now. This time the subject is email etiquette. We have a cautionary tale from our Faith Saley. What I'm about to tell you is not an opinion. It is a public service announcement. It's time to reply all responsibly. Please. For the love of all things holy and efficient, consider hitting reply all for your emails on which someone is CC'd. CC stands for carbon copy. It means all the people in the CC column are getting the same information as the folks in the two line. So even if you're not in charge, you're informed. CC means everyone's fate is now entangled. When you hit reply all, you're including all the folks on the CC train. You're keeping people in the loop so no one spends his life copying and forwarding. No one has to say, Phil moved our meeting to 9.45? Nobody told me. And no one has to say, wait, I thought you were bringing the sleeping bags. Your reply all behavior can say a lot about you. I once accidentally replied all and sent an email complaining about my then boyfriend to a bunch of strangers. It was meant for my friend, who was a bride, but I ended up addressing her entire wedding party. 
Her marriage lasted, my relationship didn't. I was young and trigger happy. Here's a simple guideline. If five names or fewer are CC'd, just go nuts and hit reply all. But if more than five folks appear in the CC line, pause, give it a thought. Some people are promiscuous and CC dozens of people who don't need to know each other's business. When your daughter's second grade teacher CCs all the parents in the class about the upcoming field trip, do you need to hit reply all so that 43 adults know your daughter objects to taxidermy and dioramas on ethical grounds? Okay, also, if you're ever BCC'd, do not go near reply all. BCC is blind carbon copy. It means you're a fly on the wall, dude. If you hit reply all, it's beyond bad etiquette to out the person who gave you the superpower of invisibility. It's like screaming, I'm a spy. Look, we all know Al Gore invented email so we could save time and save paper to save trees. And that includes phone trees. Let's get it together and hit reply all responsibly. See, see you later. How are you? Ahead. I'm Jim. <laughs> I'm Ahmed. I'm Ahmed. How are you? Finding sanctuary. Even as the United States debates its policy toward the tide of refugees from Syria, our neighbor to the north is taking steps to offer more and more of them sanctuary, especially the man our Martha Teichner's been talking with. Passengers, please proceed immediately to boarding at gate. By the time the Istanbul-Toronto flight finally landed, Jim Estel had been standing around with his sign for hours. All he knew about the Syrian brother and sister he was meeting at three in the morning We're here. was their names, Ahmed and Romov. I'm Jim. I'm Ahmed. Ahmed, how are you? My sister. Oh, good to meet you. I'm very happy. All they knew about him was that somehow this Jim Estel had brought them to Canada. You are a great man. Even in a country eager to welcome Syrian refugees, Estel has upped the ante. We'll head out. Okay. A prominent Canadian entrepreneur and businessman, he put up his own money, a million and a half Canadian dollars, 1.1 million U.S. Long live Canada. To resettle 58 Syrian families, 250 people in Guelph, a small university city an hour west of Toronto. Why? Because he was haunted by those pictures on television of Syrian cities reduced to rubble and Syrian people dying as they tried to escape to someplace else. You don't want to grow old and say you stood by and did nothing. And uh, it's the right thing to do. 68% of Canadians support their government's acceptance of Syrian refugees. In contrast, 54% of American voters think the United States has no responsibility to take Syrians. The fundamental argument against Syrian refugees in the United States is the fear of terrorism. Are you afraid? I would be wrong to say that there isn't some fear, but statistically, the fear is completely unfounded. I believe, actually, the best way to breed world citizens is to bring them in to our community and give them hope. 
Syrians contact Jim Estel directly because in Canada, individuals can sponsor refugees if they agree to fully support them for a year. Since November 2015, Canada has admitted 40,000 Syrians, 16,000 of those privately sponsored. All were vetted by the Canadian government, a process that typically takes six to nine months. The hard part is deciding who to choose. It's actually a terrible process. It's awful. We try to pick people who we think will settle well, being able to support themselves. So the ideal refugee situation would be a family with children? Yeah, mom and dad with uh, children, and I also like extended families. Baby? Each family is assigned an Arabic-speaking mentor, and at least three English-speaking mentors, like Dan Maitland. From among the 800 volunteers, Estel has recruited to help the refugees adjust. Who gets more out of this experience? I do. You do? I do. More than Ahmad? Oh, yeah. He's like older brother for me. uh, Older brother? Yeah. Estel likes to say he runs his refugee program like a business. And how many in something? 32 inch. Ah, 32. In fact, he put some of the new arrivals, like Ahmad Abad, to work temporarily at Danby, the appliance manufacturing company he runs. Find. I'll find my husband. (laughs) (laughs) He even gives them time during the workday to attend English classes at the factory. I said to him, thank you for what you doing for us, but I need to work. I need to eat from my hand. I don't want to give me fish every day. I need to turn me fishing. Don't give me the fish. I need to do the fishing. Yeah. Right. Ahmad Abed and his wife, Rula, arrived in November. From the city of Holmes, they owned a clothing factory destroyed now. This was their neighborhood. This, their apartment. They spent nearly three years in Lebanon, living in one room with their two sons. One son is still stuck there. See that sign? The exciting new retailer in this Guelph mall is going to be Ahmad. (laughs) I think this is dream. A dream come true, thanks to the backing of Jim Estel, who believes Ahmad and his family can and should be running a business again. You're wearing a little Canadian flag on your, your sweater. Oh, why? Because I love this country. Already? Yeah. I promise my God and myself, I'm going to be very good to this country here. Like she protect me, I protect her. And then there's Firaz al-Mohammed. Okay, okay, good. If being sponsored by Jim Estel wasn't good enough, things got even better for him when he was told his family 
wife Ala and daughter Lilian could live in this comfortable apartment, free, until the end of June. When did you arrive? What day? 12-12-2016. Ah, a day you'll never forget. Golden number. <laughs> a golden number. They were handed this notebook. Uh, refugee Health Line, Emergency Fire Police. A comprehensive directory of useful information. Even pictures of mentors. Uh, his name, uh, his mobile number, emails. Uh... They couldn't believe it when they found their refrigerator filled with Syrian food. Were you surprised by the welcome, the, the friendliness? The, yeah. Did it's that surprise you? It's amazing. Everywhere you go, you feel uh, you are welcome in Canada. Firas hmm. was an oil geologist in Syria, Allah, a teacher. Their Damascus home is in ruins. The war drove them first to the oil fields of Iraq, and then after ISIS attacks, to Turkey. Lilian is speaking mostly English now. Just over two months after their long flight from Istanbul, this Syrian family feels safe and grateful and Canadian. Just two or three days ago, I got a salary and I paid the first tax, so I am Canadian. <laughs> they decided to keep their welcome sign. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.